Merry Christmas. Uh, for those that um, don't know me well, um, I don't really have the gift of encouragement. <laughs> the ones laughing know me well. Um, if you have at some point in your life been encouraged by me, it was probably my wife and I'm just getting credit for it. Um, it's not my strength. I don't specifically aim to discourage, so don't misunderstand me. I just fail to aim at encouragement as I should. Um, so I'm going to go against my nature this morning and aim to encourage us since we've gathered on uh, Christmas morning. Um, I've heard and read a variety of opinions this week uh, uh, about the church gathering on Christmas Day. I'm going to refrain from diving into that debate and just going to do my best to encourage uh, those of us uh, that are here and, and know this, that part of the means that I will utilize to encourage us this morning is 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 through me speaking less than I normally do. So, Lord willing, the sermon will be relatively short and emphasize relatively there. So it's a matter of perspective. So let me just ask a question from the outset. Uh, what kind of faith would you say that you have? What kind of faith? Would you say that you have? And that's an ambiguous question, so I'll make it multiple choice. Okay, you got an option one and an option two. Two options. First, do you have the faith of a servant? You have the faith of a servant. A faith where you are trying to check off all the right boxes, trying to get things right in your life so that you might sort of garner God's favor and stay in his favor. So that's option one. Option two. Second one, do you have the faith of a son or a daughter, the faith of a child, someone who knows that there's nothing that they can do to earn the favor of God because they are a child of God and therefore already have his favor. So if you if you sort of process through your faith, look at how you live, which option would you choose, which camp would you fall in? And maybe there's times where you kind of move in and out. So maybe even the answer is ambiguous and a little gray for you. Um, but if you would circle option two, then praise God. Glad that you are here. However, if you would admit that you sort of are or hover around option one, that you sort of operate with this kind of low hum of guilt and doubt about, you know, does God like me? Does he love me? Where am I at in terms of my standing with God? Is he happy with me? Then I'm glad that you are here this morning to hear this. Um, because hopefully that God through his word would push you toward option uh, two. So hopefully God will do that. If you are in option two, uh, uh, if you're in that camp this morning, then hopefully this is a reminder of why you're there. Just just bolster that 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 faith that says, you know, I'm a child of God and I have his favor. So hopefully there's an encouragement all the way around. Uh, ultimately, given what the day is, given that it's Christmas Day, I want all of us leaving this place, uh, continuing our celebration of the day and continuing it as sons and daughters of God, resting and rejoicing in that reality, making the most of the time that we have left to celebrate this day because of that reality, just just amplifying our rejoicing and celebrating of this day because we are sons and daughters of God. So my means of encouragement this morning is his word and my aim of encouragement this morning is pointing you toward or reminding you of the fact that if you know and follow and love Jesus Christ, then you're a beloved son or daughter of God. And you can celebrate because of that. So now 
Now that I've basically given away the end of the sermon at the beginning, let's dive in and see how we get there. Galatians chapter four this morning, picking up in verse one. And I, I wrestled with this before I came up here. I have to make a confession. I chose Galatians four, knowing that it's actually a, a unique Christmas text, but you can make it a Christmas text. But I, I chose it because we went through Galatians several years ago. And I said, you know, I already have some of the heavy lifting done. Guess the one sermon that I didn't preach in the Galatians series and didn't remember that I didn't preach it. So Galatians four. So the Lord, the Lord got me on that one. So all the preparation had to go in this week. So um, our focus will be on verses four and five this morning. Going to read verses one through seven for a little context. Again, not a traditional uh, Christmas text. There's no manger, no wise men, no shepherds. You might say this is the backstory. The story behind the story. Okay, this this doesn't exist at the beginning of the gospel account, but it's very much a Christmas text. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, if you didn't bring one, there's some under the seats in front of you. Uh, And uh, if you don't have a Bible, period, then uh, Merry Christmas, our gift to you. You can take it home with you You can wrap it up and re-gift it to someone else if they'll receive it. So Galatians chapter four, starting in verse one, this is the word of God. We'll read down to verse seven and then focus on verses four and five. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that. We might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right. Let me go ahead and put this qualification on this table. Um, There's a ton here. Uh, Obviously, we're just looking at verses four and five. There's a lot that's around that that we're not going to get to really deep theological truths. Uh, But we have a particular focus this morning and an aim to be more succinct. But if there's anything in this text, anything surrounding it or anything we say that you have any questions about, please find me afterwards. We'd love to chase that down or track down my email or phone number. And I'd love to talk. But in terms of immediate context, uh, the reason we read verses one through seven. So you have this picture that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, he's painting a picture of a child here who is an heir to an estate. So think of a child, just think of a wealthy child who's an heir to an estate. And as long as he's a child in this context, he's really no different than a slave in the eyes of the law, uh, so to speak. So he, he can't make decisions. He has no real freedom. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the day that he reaches a certain age. And there's a cultural setting behind this, and it could be Jewish, it could be Roman, it could be Greek, it could be all three. Paul could just kind of allude to all three. They would all have different systems, but all have some sort of system where an heir would one day take over the estate and it would be it would be the father's decision uh, for when that would come about. Or there would be a prescribed age when that would come about. So all had some version of this. So we don't know which one Paul in particular is uh, referring to. But we're not going to cover verses one through three in detail. But what Paul Paul is doing is using a cultural situation to paint a picture of our condition where we existed before Christmas happened, before Jesus came. Basically, that's where we were before Jesus. 
We were slaves. Okay, we were slaves. We were under the guardianship of the law. So we're not going to get into that, but that's what he's doing, trying to paint a picture there. So if we were to to follow this and, and Paul would even give us sort of hints to go back to Genesis if we read through Galatians. But if you go back to the very first book in the Bible, go back to the creation account and then the account of the fall, we would see that we humans were originally created to be sons and daughters. We, we were heirs. OK, we were in a good position. However, when we sinned, when the fall happened, when we basically looked at God and said, we got this, we don't need you. Then we became slaves. We became slaves to ourselves and to our sin. And it was at that point. OK, Genesis one, two, and in the fall and three, it was at that point that God set in motion his plan of redemption. And what we have here in Galatians 4 is clarity about how that plan came to fruition. How former slaves, really former sons and daughters who became slaves, would one day become sons and daughters again. So Galatians 4 is explaining a lot of redemptive history and a lot of truth. It's just packing it into a couple of verses. And I'll go ahead and uh, and jump ahead, and I want to address a question that might be in the back of your minds if you're not familiar with the Bible. So verse 5, so let me, let me just address this as we go so that it's not, not kind of hanging you up. But verse 5 talks about adoption as sons, okay, adoption as sons, using, you know, masculine language there. That is not excluding females. Uh, in fact... If you the cultural context and the Paul, the language that Paul is using, he's actually elevating females by the way that he is saying this. So in this day, the son would be the heir. Okay, the son would get everything. Everything would be passed down to the son. So Paul is adopting that language and basically saying you're all sons, you're all heirs. Okay, when you come to Christ, you are all heirs. Okay, both male and female, anyone who believes becomes a son and therefore an heir and receives the inheritance. If you just go back up to verse 28 of chapter three, you can you can prove this easily. So from a salvific standpoint, he levels the playing field in verse 28 of chapter three. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. So hopefully that makes sense. He's not excluding females when he's talking about we're adopted as sons. He's saying we're all adopted as heirs. Okay. All right. Here's the game plan with the time we have left. Just verses four and five. I want to draw five truths about the incarnation. So five truths about the incarnation, five theological truths regarding what happened on that first Christmas morning or what was set up on that first Christmas morning. And there could be a sermon on each of these truths, but we're going to tackle all of them, kind of hold them together uh, since it's uh, Christmas. So uh, and number one, and these go, I'm, I'm following the order of the text. Sometimes the text just allows you to do that. The, the outline is the text. Uh, so first truth about the incarnation, about uh, the birth of, of Christ. And, and, and by the way, incarnation, that's just another way to talk about God taking on flesh. It's a word that means God became man. God became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. So Christmas incarnation, those two things are connected. So when you hear me say that Christmas is about the incarnation. All right. First truth, the timing was particular. Truth number one, the timing was particular. So verse four notes about the timing here. When did it happen? OK, when did it happen? What does he say? When the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. So I mentioned that Genesis account a moment ago. So the, the first promise or the mention of the coming of Christ is actually in the account of the fall. So God makes a statement to Satan about the seed of the woman bruising his head and then Satan bruising his heel. 
That's actually the first indication that Christmas would happen. That's the first indication of the gospel. You fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 and you get a promise to Abraham about a son that would bless all nations. You keep going. Second Samuel seven and you get King David. He is promised a son that would reign forever. And you just find these markers throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again about Christmas. They're just signaling what was going to happen at Christmas. Well, you get to Galatians four and it just sums up the time in which Christ did come and it just calls it the fullness of time. It was the planned time. It was the perfect time. It was the right time. The incarnation of Jesus Christ took place according to the sovereign timing, providential orchestration and perfect schedule of God. To play off the illustration that Paul uses in the first three verses, it was the time designated by the father for his children to enter into his inheritance. So if you if you study when people when it says the fullness of time, people love to dive into sort of the cultural settings and go, why? Why was that? Why was the first century in a Roman context? Why was this the fullness of time? They would talk about how you have the the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. You had roads then that allowed ease of travel okay, to all over the place. You had a common language. Greek was a common language spoken by most people, so it made communication easier. So there's all sorts of factors you can point out to go, this was the ideal time for the Savior to come. And I'm not going to say all of that is significant, but we could look at our day and maybe doubt that God had the timing right. Maybe it would have been better in our day. What about the Internet and social media and airplanes? Wouldn't that make his ministry a lot easier? Couldn't he spread? There's a lot more people now. He got to got a bigger following. We really can't take make too much of the cultural setting because God doesn't give us much beyond the fact that he chose this term. He doesn't tell us much beyond that. The incarnation was no last minute solution to some surprise problem. It wasn't like a quickly thrown together rescue mission. It was it was not too early. It was not too late. It was the fullness of time. The perfect time, the right time, the time chosen, if you connect it with other truths, the time that God chose before the very foundation of the world. God doesn't make mistakes and the choice to send the Christ in the first century was perfect and it was sovereignly planned. So we can trust based on that, that every aspect of the incarnation, everything that happened was planned and perfect. So the timing was particular. Next, number two, second truth about the incarnation. The initiative was divine. The initiative was divine. When the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth his son. That term translated as sent forth. It's a it's a general term that could be used to talk about sending an army off to war or commissioning a person to a certain duty. God sent forth his son. Paul uses that language to talk about the incarnation. God, the father authored and initiated what happened on Christmas. It was his perfect plan, his perfect time and of his choosing. He chose to do this. So there's an emphasis here on divine intentionality, which which ties in with the first truth we looked at. And that's the sort of obvious truth that kind of sits right on the surface of the language. The fact that God orchestrated all of this, God orchestrated Christmas. But there's even more here underneath the language, something that I would say is more pertinent than just divine intentionality. This language also points to eternal deity. 
That sent forth language assumes the preexistence of Christ. That is, this statement points to the reality that Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with God. God the Son existed eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit. He wasn't created at the incarnation. We just we just saying that. What we have here is one of the many indicators of the Trinitarian nature of God. One God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, in verses 1 through 7, the reason I read those is hopefully you notice that you have all three at work in this one text. You have the Father who makes and enacts the plan. You have the Son who accomplishes it. And then later on, you have the Spirit who applies it. And we don't have time this morning to tackle all of this. The, the point here for Paul is he wants us to see the divinity of the Son that was born. As John says in his gospel, the word, which is a reference to Jesus, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the incarnation. You have the full divinity of God on display. One pastor said it well, he said, I declare that the source of the incarnation is good news because it tells us that when a savior was needed, God gave us his very best. When Adam and Eve ate us out of house and home, God just didn't send Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God didn't just send Moses and Joshua. God didn't just send David and Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God didn't just send some prophets, apostles and angels. God sent forth his own son. As the lyrics to the song go, as he sleeps upon the hay, he he holds the moon and stars in place. Though born an infant, he remains the sovereign God of endless days. Number three, the means was shocking. Third truth, the means was shocking. God sent forth his son. Next part, born of a woman. Okay, the phrase God sent forth his son is only applicable to one person. But the phrase born of a woman is applicable to all people. So what's unique about it here? Okay, well, this is the shocking part. Not only does the Bible teach that Jesus is God, but it also teaches that Jesus is human. He was born, he grew, he ate, he lived, he drank, he slept, he cried, he eventually died. Jesus was not some phantom deity who came in the appearance of flesh. Jesus was as much human as we are. As Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though that he was in the form of God, did not account equality God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, fully divine and fully man, both essential. In order to go through In order to carry through with the plan of redemption, he had to be God for only God could overcome sin and death. He also to be had to be man because only man can be a substitute for man. Now, Paul doesn't give us anything really in this text about the unique mode of Jesus's conception. We know from the gospel accounts that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. The incarnation was a divine act in the womb of Mary. Paul doesn't put any emphasis on that. His emphasis is not on the unique mode of conception, but on but rather on Jesus's full participation in the human condition. Paul wants us to see divinity and humanity side by side in the birth of Jesus. You can also know that Paul doesn't say anything regarding the lowly circumstances into which Jesus was born. We give a lot of emphasis to that this time of year, how Jesus was essentially born into poverty okay, to a family that nobody knew that was of no importance. 
Those circumstances are noteworthy. Okay, it's not bad that we look at those. Those are in the scriptures. But what's most significant about Christmas is not found in the circumstances surrounding the birth, but in the identity of the baby that was born into the circumstances. At Christmas, God became human. The means were shocking, to put it lightly. Number four, next truth, the setting was essential. God sent forth his son, born under a woman, next, born under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. He was born a Jew, and therefore born with the burden or or bound to obey God's law in its entirety. Okay, By his birth, he was required to keep the law, which he did to perfection. He kept the whole law for his people, circumcised on the eighth day as the law required. He never broke even one of the Ten Commandments. He followed the biblical pattern of worship. He attended the feast. He celebrated the Passover. He did everything, everything the law required, and he did it to perfection. As 1 John 3, 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He never sinned. He never broke a law. He never disobeyed, and he never ignored a command. He didn't directly disobey a command, nor did he ever ignore a single command. And he had the right heart in his obedience, too. On top of that, he was perfectly obedient and entirely righteous. I think this is an often overlooked or underemphasized aspect of the gospel. So we in the gospel, we we rightly give a lot of attention to to the cross, okay, to the death of Jesus but we wrongly fail to emphasize the life of Jesus. You know, sort of sort of give away part of the next truth, but but a couple of things occur when it comes to salvation. When you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, a couple of things happen, okay? The debt that you owe because of your sin is paid. Okay? That happens. A penalty is paid. Okay? That's essential and that happens at salvation. But something else also happens. Your account is not just cleared or settled, it's also credited. So in terms so use financial terms, okay? You have a debt. Okay, if you think use financial terms to describe salvation, you have a debt that is paid, but then your account is padded. All at the same time. So you're sitting in a negative and you don't just go to neutral. OK, you go to positive. You go from red to way black. At salvation, you get the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to you so that when God looks at you, he doesn't ultimately see your meager attempts at obedience. He sees Christ's perfect accomplishment of obedience in Christ. You stand on his record not yours. In Christ, you stand on his record, not yours. That's what's hit on at, at by this phrase that he was born under the law. The setting that he was born into or under is essential. Christ was born to obey, and he did so for our sake and for the glory of God. Which is tied to the last truth. Number five, the purpose is spectacular. The purpose is spectacular. So, Dual purposes here in the incarnation, dual purposes for Christmas or compounding purposes. God sent forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law. Why? Was the text say first to redeem those who were under the law. So his first purpose in coming, the first purpose of Christmas is or was redemption. 
The incarnation Christmas is essential to salvation. Salvation comes through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The incarnation affirms his person and then sets up his work. According to the Bible, so this is clear, according to the Bible, Calvary, not Bethlehem, is the center of, of Christianity. So, all right, the cross is central, not not the cradle. Okay, But Calvary starts at Bethlehem. The cross and the manger are are essential to one another. They are not in competition. They are in perfect harmony. The baby in the manger came to die on the cross. The baby in the manger came for the purpose of redemption. So we don't have to disconnect those two or let them fight with one another. This word redeem here, this concept means to release by paying a ransom price. It's a commercial term that would have been used. Uh, it's concept about buying slaves and purchasing their freedom from the marketplace. That's a picture of us in our sinful condition. We are slaves, okay, to ourselves and to our sin. And John 8, Jesus says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you don't think you are, you are enslaved to it. And this slavery is something that we cannot break free of on our own. It's a bondage that we cannot break free of without help. Jesus goes on to say in John 8 that the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's the deal, and I don't want to put a damper on Christmas, but hopefully this heightens the importance of Christmas and make you love it all the more. The only way to avoid the holy wrath of eternal judgment that is owed us from God because of our sin is if Jesus sets you free. But if he redeems you, and that's part of the purpose of the incarnation, to set captives free. Here's how one pastor put it. I I couldn't say it any better. He says, Jesus was born with an assignment from the father to die on the cross, where his blood would be the ransom that sets us free from the bondage of sin. He goes on to say, if our greatest need had been information, he would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would send us a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need would have been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation, so God sent us a redeemer. As Matthew says in his gospel, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The baby came to save. Christmas is not worth celebrating if that's not true. What are we celebrating if that's not true? One pastor said it well. Jesus came and stood before God with all our sin upon him so that we, through faith, might stand before God with none of our sin on us. The first purpose of Christmas is redemption, but it gets better if it can, if it's even possible to say it gets better. We see a second purpose here. God sent forth this son, born of, under, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that, as the text says, we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus came not just to buy us out of slavery, but to adopt us into the family. Romans 8 calls Christians heirs, okay? heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I don't think if you're reading this in the first century, the, 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 the redemption language is not necessarily shocking. Okay, Maybe God becoming flesh is shocking, but not redemption language. People would have understood that language. People would have understood the redemption of slaves. They would have redeemed slaves for one of two reasons, either to set them free or to enslave them themselves. 
I'm either going to buy you and set you free or I'm buying you so that you're my slave. But no one would redeem a slave, take them home and make them the heir of their estate. They may have become free, but they would have never become a son. In the incarnation, God purposed not just our freedom, but our adoption. Jesus walked into the marketplace of sin, the place of captivity, and he paid the price so that we could walk out. But he didn't just leave us. He didn't just kind of usher us out the door and go, you're free, go. And then we're left to wander around. He walked us out the door, put us in the car and drove us home and put us at the table and fed us and introduced us to the rest of the family. You know, every illustration breaks down at some point, but maybe this will help a little bit. Imagine that you are a homeless, orphaned criminal. Okay, no mother, father, friends, family, criminal, guilty. You know, you're guilty. You're in court. And there's no doubt you're guilty. Everyone there knows, the judge knows, and you know, and you're not trying to hide it. Okay, the case has been presented. Judge sits, ready to give his judgment on the case. And to everybody's surprise, he says, not guilty. Everybody's shocked. Can't believe it. Not guilty. But then it gets even stranger. The judge gets up off the bench, walks down. Removes the handcuffs off your hands himself, grabs you by the arm, walks you out and says, you're going home with me. You're now my son and I'm going to take care of you. That's what this was happening. Went from not just being declared innocent, but being affirmed as a son from from guilty to adopted, not not innocent and wrongly accused, but guilty to adopted, not just guilty to not guilty, but guilty to son or daughter. So. You get the meaning of Christmas, a son that came to make many sons, the son of God to make many sons of God. The purpose of the incarnation moves through redemption and goes all the way to adoption. We're not just set free. We're made to belong. Let me land the plane this way. There's one word there in the last part of verse five that sticks out. Paul says Jesus came that we might receive. Notice that adoption of sons. Not that we might accept it. Okay. That we might receive it. Take note of what that means. That this means that we are not redeemed and adopted because we deserved it. It means we are not redeemed and adopted because we work for it. And we're not redeemed and adopted because we earned it. If we are redeemed and adopted, it's because God willed it. Because God planned it and enacted it because Jesus accomplished it and the spirit applied it so we didn't earn it we didn't work for it and we don't deserve it we simply receive it and we do so by faith faith in who jesus is and what he has done i don't have any application this morning for us okay just christmas truth it's like it's bad preaching no application just truth. So I'm, I'm not sure. 
I hope you woke up and it's been a good morning already. I hope it continues to be a great day. But I'm not sure if you woke up knowing you are and feeling like you are a son and daughter of God. I don't know if you walked in here knowing that you are or feeling like you are a son or daughter of God. But I hope that you walk out confident that you are and rejoicing that you are and able to celebrate that you are a son or daughter of God. So just ask yourself this question as you leave today or in this moment. Do I trust Jesus? Not not am I perfect and not have I checked all the boxes or not how I'm doing right now or I messed up this morning or I yelled at somebody or I was frustrated or or what I did this week. Do I trust Jesus? Am I trusting Jesus right now? Do I see Jesus as the only means of salvation? If I'm standing before God, is Jesus all that I have or am I going to try to put something else before God? Am I able to look at the baby in the manger, the divine son of God, born of a woman, born in the law, sent to redeem and adopt? Have I received those truths by faith and am I resting in them at this very moment? If you can say yes, if you say amen to that, and I hope you can, then you can leave confident that you are a son or daughter of God and that he delights in your celebration of the coming of his son. So if you can say amen to that, you can leave here rejoicing. Go forth. Let's do this. Like, there's your application. Go forth and celebrate as a son or daughter, no longer as a slave or as a servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Just very simply for the sending of your son, for what Christmas ultimately means. Thank you for your grace toward us, for a faith family, for family, for, for friends, for the freedom to pause and to celebrate. Help us, Father, as we go about the rest of our day or a week. Help us to know that we are and feel that we are beloved sons and daughters of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.